told Grace that even if our, on the way to church tonight, that even if we had to deal with a little bit of rain outside for our watermelon fellowship, I am not going to complain about the rain. Uh, we need it and uh, very grateful for it. And uh, didn't even hurt my feelings to see a little mud get tracked in tonight. Like, you know what? That's where we are. Amen. North Carolina. My mother, when I was a kid, when we were kids, we always hated it if we got a new pair of tennis shoes just before we made a trip out here to North Carolina because she would never let us bring new tennis shoes to North Carolina from Missouri, uh, where Dad uh, pastored in St. Louis at the time and now in Northeast Missouri. He just, uh, Mom said, nope, because it's going to rain and that North Carolina red clay is going to destroy those tennis shoes. So we're leaving them in Missouri, and we just hated that. So anyway, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 1 through 3 will be our text this evening. The Apostle Paul, and really this is the transition. You remember the outline of the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters of the doctrinal foundation, and then the last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are the practical application based on who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, Ephesians 1 through 3, the privileges that we have as sons of God brought in by grace into the family of God, not by any works that we have done, but by His grace and all that we have been given, we've been seated together in heavenly places, then because of that, that is to describe and to define our walk. In chapter number four, the apostle Paul deals with unity in the church. He moves into unity, our relationship to the world, the unity in the home, and our relationship in our employment, and what life is to look like as we grasp who we are, or as he says in verse number one here of chapter four, what our vocation is, our calling. Verse number one, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, uh, understand therefore because of the foundation that's been laid doctrinally, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Um, using the title tonight, Unity is Not Easy, but then I will say this, it is worth it. It is worth it. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, help us as we look into your word this evening and uh, seek to remind ourselves from the scripture of the importance of uh, unity among believers. And Lord, we thank you for Crossroads Baptist Church and what uh, we can look back in the past and see that you have done through us. Lord, I pray for your blessings on her future, too. And I pray that our heartbeat for unity would match and beat in sync with your heartbeat for unity. As we think about how vital it is to a church's fulfillment of the Great Commission and <clears throat> testifying to the world uh, through the love that we have for one another that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ. And God, help us as we consider some important thoughts this evening from your word. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I think about the power of unity, I'm often reminded of the event that happened years ago when I was a young dad and husband, and I was helping with a Bible school at the church my dad pastors. We had a guest missionary in, and he knew something about physics that I didn't know about it. And I know I've told this to some before. But he got five little four- and five-year-old girls out there on the churchyard, the activity field, where we were doing Bible school recreation time. 
And he put them together on one end of a rope for tug of war and put me all by myself on the other end of that rope. And I thought, I'm a grown man. I'm going to drag these little girls all over the yard. And those little girls, four or five years old, four or five of them, drug me all over the yard uh, because they had more surface area in contact with the ground. I understand it was physics, but what a testimony to the power of unity. When five little girls working together can defeat someone bigger than any of them individually. The Bible tells us and indicates to us that unity is in the local church vital for her being pleasing to Christ, for the church accomplishing God's purposes for the institution of the local church. But the Bible also indicates that unity is not easy. I read an article this past week that spoke to that, and if I remember correctly, the title of the article is, Why is Unity So Hard? And I looked at that and I read it, and when I was finished reading it, I thought, you know what, this is a these, this guy's making some good points. Why is it so hard? And uh, there are several of those things that will come out in the course of the message this evening. But I wanted to think about this truth not through an article, but through the Bible. Okay, it's easy for us, and we've warned. You know, we warn younger preachers: don't take your messages from headlines and so on. Does the Bible indicate that unity is not always easy? It does. The very fact in chapter number 4 and verse number 3 that the Apostle Paul uses the word endeavoring indicates that unity is not always easy. If we're to endeavor to keep something, it means make every effort with speed. It's uh, the idea of it's the same word that is used, the Apostle Paul uses to talk about the pastor's studying. Study to show thyself approved unto God. It's the idea of digging in deep and working hard at it and often including the idea of labor. And then look, if you would, at Ephesians, uh, the very next book in the New Testament, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, pardon me, Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 27. Philippians 1 and verse number 27, the Apostle Paul tells the believers at Philippi, only let your conversation, your manner of life, be as it becometh or is uh, fitting with the gospel of Christ, uh, consistent with the gospel of Christ, and it also includes the idea of making it attractive. Let your manner of life be as it becometh or fits the gospel of Christ and thereby makes it attractive, appealing. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Notice that you, this, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind. What are the next two words? Striving together. The, the Greek word translated striving together uh, is the prefix soon, which means together with. Okay, so different parties coming together. And the word from which we get our English word, athletics, which in the first century context had the idea of wrestling. We are to wrestle together, obviously tag team wrestling, if you would, on the same team for the faith of the gospel. So there's striving that is involved in order for us to have unity. There's endeavoring that is involved, making every effort, okay, and doing so quickly, instantaneously doing so, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The history of the New Testament church, and I'm not, I'm not talking about once we get beyond 100 A.D., but I'm talking about based on the record of the New Testament Scripture as it relates to letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to various New Testament churches illustrates that unity was not easy. 
Look at a few of those passages with me. Keep your hand in Ephesians and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 and 11. The Apostle Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, for it hath been declared to me, uh, unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. I've always wondered what it was like in the church at Corinth when Paul's letter showed back up. After the report from the house of Chloe, can you imagine some people, as those verses were read, dropping their heads, other people looking over their shoulder at the house of Chloe? <laughs> You're the one that told on us, right? Okay. Now, we often think about Corinth. If I ask, if you ask, if we're talking about carnal churches and churches that were characterized by division, all of us are immediately going to say, Corinth, okay. We've teased before, why in the world anybody would name their church Corinth Baptist Church unless it's in a town called Corinth is beyond me. Either they don't know their New Testament or they're being more honest than others are. Okay. Look, if you would, at Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Here's a circular read letter written to a number of churches in the, I believe, the southern part of the province of Galatian, or Galatia. Galatians chapter 5, verse number 13. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve or slave for one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then notice the warning. And he's addressing problems that were in the churches. But if ye bite and devour one another, Take heed that you be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are the contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would, but if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. He would go on in verses 20 and 21 to warn them about the works of the flesh, which were the end of, end of verse number 19 there, uh, wrath and strife and seditions and heresies and envyings things that were in the churches, and Paul is having to confront those things. Look, if you would, in our textbook, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Uh, the tense of this verb is that it was happening, and Paul is saying, stop it, stop it. Stop letting corrupt communication. It's the idea of already decaying. It's that which is characterized by the dead man, the old man. Okay, That which is to have been crucified with Christ. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, building up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. It's one of the rare places in the New Testament where we are pictured as ministering grace. Predominantly, it's the Lord ministering grace to us, but one of the ways that we can minister grace to others is by our words. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed into the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, and this is again a continuous action, the kind of thing that Paul is addressing that was already taking place. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Look at Philippians chapter 4. You notice we're just moving nearly book by book through the New Testament. Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 2. 
The Apostle Paul begins with verse number one. Therefore, my dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Iodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Again, can you imagine the day that Philippians, the letter to the Philippians showed up and whoever it was got up and started reading it. (laughs) I can imagine that uh, I'm like this. When we're reading a book as a family, I'm reading ahead. And I'll pause for a minute. If this were me, I would have been pausing at the end of chapter 3 and kind of looking ahead. My kids would say to me, Dad, don't stop. You're looking ahead. We see what you're doing. I'd have been looking ahead at this. I'd have been thinking, oh, man, this is going to be hard because here sits Iodius and here sits Syntyche. <laughs> and I'm about to name them in public because they're not getting along. And they're not getting along was undermining the ability of the church to stand fast in the Lord. And so Paul addresses it. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 12. Put on therefore is the elect of God. Holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. How did Christ forgive us? Above all things, all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. To the which also you're called in one body, talking about the church, and be ye thankful. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. This is a pretty powerful and strong one right here. But again, that's the way James was. James, uh, old camel knees as he was called in uh, church history. Old camel knees uh, was a blunt man. He just said it. Verse number 1, chapter 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? He's talking to believers. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. It really seems like a New Testament version of the uh, verse in Proverbs that we mentioned on Wednesday night. Only by pride cometh contention. Wow. Wow. You see, major New Testament epistles, including... uh, Epistles to churches that we often consider to be model churches. The book of Ephesus, Philippi. We won't even look tonight at all the causes of disunity that the Bible demonstrates or illustrates or why people leave churches. I read an article recently about four different kinds of churches that uh, they all could ascribe to the same doctrinal statement conservative evangelical doctrine we would say use the term and yet because of issues or because of preferences uh, there are issues that divide churches from among themselves and from within too and so if we looked at if we stopped right here you know what our human tendency would be why even try Why even try? If this has been the issue of churches for 2,000 years, why even try? Why? Because we're told to. We're told to endeavor, even if it's not easy. We're told to strive together. It's worth it. Before we finish the message tonight, we'll consider the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that keeping those 12 disciples together was not easy. And yet... Jesus did it. 
He strove to do so. He endeavored to do so. It's worth it also as I look at Romans chapters 15 and 16, the last two chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul admonished the believers in the church at Rome before he had ever even been there. He admonished them, he challenged them to stay unified, to do the things that they did with one mind and with one mouth, with one goal. Why? Because he was going to be passing through there and he was going to need help as he continued on in his missionary endeavors and his great commission work. He was going to need help and he made the connection that in order for a church to fulfill the great commission, it's got to be unified. And the devil knows that if he can bring about disunity, whether it's through spiritual warfare, whether it's through a diatrophies, whether it's through getting divided over some kind of issue, whatever it may be, he knows that if he can divide the church and bring disunity into a church, he hamstrings its effectiveness in carrying out the Great Commission. So it's worth it for a number of reasons. Back in Ephesians chapter number 4, I want you to notice, first of all, the manner in which we can endeavor to keep the unity of the peace, the spirit and the bond of peace. The Apostle Paul says in verse number one, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye, what's the word? Walk. It's the first of seven times in the remainder of the book that the Apostle Paul will use the walk to describe the Christian life, whether individually or corporately. Not run. He doesn't say, I beseech you that you run. But I beseech you that you walk. When you think of a walk, what do you think of? One step at a time. Step by step. That requires patience sometimes. Uh, I have been out walking. Judson and I were out doing some running around the, the other day. And though he's got long legs like I do, I still walk faster than he does. And I'd be walking and he'd be behind me and I'd be like, son, keep up. And then it hit me. Maybe I need to slow down. When you're matching pace and waiting for somebody else to come along, unity takes work. It's not easy, but the manner of acquiring it is fit in the context of walking step by step. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk. What's the next word? Worthy. The word worthy means of, of equal weight or inconsistency with, that you walk step by step worthy of or equal weight to or in consistency with the vocation wherewith you're called. Now, Paul, in verse number one, would refer to himself as the prisoner of the Lord. I believe that's his surrender to God's will. But he's just finished in chapters one through three, highlighting the privileges of being a son of God. We have access, we have abundance, we're adopted into the family of God. We have the assurance of eternal life. I mean, they just keep piling up these privileges and get this, none of us deserved any of them. And it contributes to our unity when we just take conscious, intentional steps in the realization of the privileges that we have as sonship and as sons. We've been called. I didn't... I didn't say, God, you really got a deal when you got me. Okay? I better not say that. But it's the idea of understanding, I don't deserve to be where I am. None of us deserves to be where we are. And so the manner is that we walk just step by step together in the awareness, the understanding, the reminder of who we are. 
because of what Jesus has done for us. But I want you to notice, secondly, as we consider this fact that unity is not easy, but it's worth it, I notice the manner that we walk, but number two, the mindset. The Apostle Paul tells us how, in verse number two, how we're to do this walking. We're to do so, notice this, with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering and forbearing one another in love. Lowliness. We spoke of this some last Wednesday evening. The word literally means the humility of mind, humility in the sense of bringing ourselves as an individual down to the level of all those around us, a mindset in honor preferring one another and considering others better than ourselves. That's a mindset that contributes to unity. As hard as it is, it's worth it. The mindset of meekness. By the way, these two words, lowliness and meekness, are two words that are used several times to refer to Jesus himself. In fact, the Lord in Matthew 11 used these words to refer to himself. He is meek and lowly of heart. The word meekness speaks of gentleness. It speaks of mildness in our interactions with one another as we, in this manner, walk step by step, reminding ourselves of the privileges that we have. We're not deserving of what we have, and that shapes a mindset of lowliness, humility of mind, in considering others better than ourselves, and gentleness in how we interact with each other. Hardness, harshness, forcing has no place in God's people in their interactions with each other. Gentleness. It has the idea of being mild as well. And then Paul uses the word as he talks further about the mindset that contributes to unity as hard as it is. He talks about the word long-suffering. You've heard this one mentioned before. The Greek word is macrothumia. Macro meaning long and thumos or thumia. Literally the idea of a fuse on a firework or on a stick of dynamite. Long fused. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of when I was a boy, I found a bag of fireworks. I was maybe eight, nine, ten years old. I found a bag of fireworks from the previous year. And something had deteriorated with the fuses, and I thought I was going to have fun. I went out to the old burn barrel out behind the house, and, I, and it had a long wick on it. And I remember as a boy strike, using a strike anywhere match, holding that bobcat firework in my hand thinking I could light it, hold it, and then flick it right at the last minute. I lit that thing, and that fuse ignited all at once. Bam! And that thing blew up in my hand, and my hand just kind of froze open like this. Numb, immediately no feeling in it. That wasn't a very long fuse. It didn't take much to set that firework off. It wasn't long fused. The idea of being long fused is hard to ignite. Hard to ignite. Paul says, listen, if you're going to have unity and a mindset that will contribute to unity as hard as it is, you need to be someone who is hard to set off, hard to ignite. Boy, if it's an individual who's just, man, anything just sets them off, that's going to be a difficult road to hoe for that person when it comes to unity in a local church. Somebody gets set off with every little thing. And then the word forbearing, the mindset that contributes to unity as hard as it is, is forbearing one another in love or by love. 
Forbearing is not a passive idea, but it's a positive, proactive idea. It's not, okay, I'm putting up with you. Carries with it the idea of putting up with or bearing with someone, but doing so in the spirit or the attitude of love, it has a positive flavor to it. Almost as if, you know what, in a church, we're going to have all kinds of different personalities. There's an, a, an amazing mix in a church. All kinds of different personalities. And it's the idea of because of the love that Christ has had for me and the fact that I want to be a channel through which His love flows to others, I'm actually going to embrace this opportunity to forbear with people that it's not necessarily easy for me to always forbear with. Do you know what I find? Here's a transparency flash. Do you know, I, it's easier for me to get along with people who aren't like me than it is for people who are like me. I have a harder time with personalities like mine than I do with personalities different than mine. Now, maybe you're not that way. Maybe you're one of those people and you have a harder time with people who have a different personality than you do. But I, and I know that this is just a statement of the obvious, but there are a bunch of different personalities in a local church. And the attitude that Paul is speaking here of the mindset when it comes to contributing to unity as difficult as it is at times, as, as hard as it may be, is to literally, you know what? I'm going to embrace this opportunity. There are, gonna, there are people there that aren't like me, that we may even disagree over things. All of these different backgrounds. We'll talk a little bit more about that even as it relates to Jesus' disciples. But the manner, the mindset, forbearing to put up with and to, because of the love of Christ, has a, have a positive perspective of it. But I want you to notice thirdly, as we talk about endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, I want you to know the meaning of these two words. The word unity speaks of a oneness, and the word peace that Paul uses in verse number 3 speaks of the quietness that is to characterize that oneness. You can force a oneness. We call it conformity but you may not have quietness. You may not have peace. And Paul says we're to endeavor to keep the unity, the oneness of the Spirit in the bond of peace or quietness. The meaning of these words. And I say this as it relates to unity. Unity in a local church is not, dominated, is not the dominated or dominating majority. There are times a majority can be wrong. It's not forced conformity. It's not boxed uniformity. You know what? I think it's healthy for a local church to have people in it that look different. Sometimes it's a struggle for a church that, and, and, and I've been evaluating this. When the people that a church attracts are only people that already look like us. I have a pastor friend who years ago was pastoring in the Northeast and a lady, a first-time visitor who was an unbeliever, came into the service immodestly dressed and that one of the deacons came, and, and I don't think any of our deacons would do this, but one of the deacons came to the pastor and said, what are we going to do about that woman? dressed like that. 
pastor looked at the deacon and he said, what do you think Mary Magdalene looked like the first time she met Jesus? We need to have a heart for people that don't look like us. If we love them that love us, we're, we're no different than the scribes, Jesus said. They, they loved fellow scribes. Boxed uniformity. Unity is not favoring the minority either, but it is submitted unity, not to any one individual's mind, but unity, the unity of who? The unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. This is a mindset that's not easily acquired. I was thinking about the story that Keith Lammers told me when he was in the Navy about the vessel that he was on. It had seven to 800 sailors on it. I don't know what kind of boat it was. I'm sure it wasn't an aircraft carrier or a battleship. It wasn't that big of a ship. But he was on a ship that got stuck in the mud. watching Ryan smile over there. You can imagine what that would be for a ship to get stuck in. How would you like to be the captain responsible for that happening? And do you know what they did? You talk about primitive but necessary measures. Keith said that they got all seven to 800 of those sailors and they grouped them all on the far end of the ship, opposite of the end, it was stuck in the mud. And then in syncopation, had them all starting jumping up and down on the deck of the ship. I'm sitting here thinking, there's no way that would work. But he said, as all seven to 800 of them, and I've imagined the mindset. Can you imagine some of the guys saying, can you believe we're in this fix? Who was driving this thing anyway? You know, there could have been all kinds of reasons why some sailor would have bucked at that or balked at that. But the bottom line is, is the ship is stuck in the mud. And the way to get it out at that time was for everybody to jump up and down, coordinated together to get it unstuck. And Keith said, it worked. I'd like to know if there's video of that somewhere. I'd love to see it. There were probably all different mindsets going on in some of those sailors. But the bottom line is, is if they didn't surrender their individual identity or opinions or whatever and work together, in order to get that ship out of its fix, they're going to be stuck and go nowhere. So the meaning, unity, oneness, but oneness with quietness, and it's not any individual's unity or mindset, it's that of the Spirit. But I want you to notice number four. As we think about unity and how it is not always easy, and yet it's worth it, I want you to notice the motivation. Paul refers to this unity as endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's the, it is the unity that the Spirit produces. So that requires that each individual believer be focused on being under the control, the leadership of the Spirit of God, so that the fruit of the Spirit of God is manifested through us. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and so motivations for endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit is so that the witness of the Spirit, as the song says, can be bright and clear through our lives as a church. 
And so that he can, through us, give evidence to the reality of the power of God. And through us, as a church, can do things that otherwise could not be done. Go with me to John chapter 7. I mentioned this last week, and I've been thinking about this, especially as we've been dealing with the well issue at our house. John chapter 7, verse number 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, just, just imagine the metaphor in your mind. Okay, I, I know that it's a strange thing to think about, but out of his belly flowing rivers of water. Think of the metaphor. Can a person have rivers of water flowing out of their belly and it not be noticed? <laughs> it's kind of humorous to imagine. But if a guy's got rivers of water flowing out of his belly, somebody's going to see that. He's going to be wet and a bunch of other people are going to be wet. Are you with me? Okay. Notice. Verse 39, but this spake he of the Spirit, which ye that believe on him should, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, but that Jesus, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So when the Spirit of God comes, he, like rivers of water, is going to create this gush. When he's not grieved and when he's not quenched, he's going to create this powerful outflow of fruit, if you would, and of water that is going to have a profound effect on those who are thirsty all around us. That's why we strive for the unity, the oneness of the Spirit, the oneness He produces. I thought about this with the well pump we had put in recently. Our well is 560 feet deep. That's essentially this building five times, end to end. That's a, law, that's a deep hole. It is uh, six and a quarter inches wide. That's the bore shaft for the well. It's sleeved most, a lot of the way down. The static water level, it produces two gallons a minute. The static water level is filled up to about 105 feet below the surface. So I essentially have 460 feet of water in that well in a six and a quarter inch shaft. That pump is almost completely at the bottom of that well. Have you ever thought about the power that it takes for a pump against gravity to pump water 500 feet against gravity straight up, another 100 feet horizontally into the house, pressurizing all of the half-inch and three-quarter-inch lines in the house, holding that pressure with a bladder or whatever the check valve mechanism may be, holding that pressure so that at any given point, multiple fixtures in that house can be turned on and equalized pressure of water come out of each of those fixtures. And the power that is producing that is a little machine 500 feet below ground. Defying gravity. That's power. But that is nothing. Nothing compared to the Spirit of God who lives within us. And the power that He can and desires to produce through us to nourish others and to manifest His fruit.
So the motivation is, I don't want to do anything that's going to stand in the way of that. But secondly, another motivation is the work of Christ. Another motivation for us as we think about endeavoring, why we should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, is because it's in the bond of peace. As you see this in verse number 3, this bond of peace. What is Paul talking about, this bond of peace, this thing that binds different parties together in quietness? If you go back to chapter number 2, in verse number 11, we find something about this bond of peace. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. What is Paul doing here? He's saying, okay, you Gentiles uncircumcised, uncircumcised outside of the people of God. We're the Jews, the circumcision. We called you the uncircumcised. You were aliens. You were outsiders. You were undeserving. Verse number 12, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off were made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our, what's the word? Peace. He is our peace, who hath made both one, Jew and Gentile. He has bound them together together. And hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, that is between Jew and Gentile, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, to them that were, uh, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. This bond of peace is something that was accomplished by, get this, by nothing else than the blood of Jesus' cross. That is what brought Jew and Gentile together and brought down that middle wall of partition. If ever there was a rift, it was the Jew and the Gentile rift. By the way, we're still seeing that today. If ever there was a rift, and yet the blood of Christ bridged what we might consider the greatest human rift of all, and it was so dealt with, that Jew and Gentile in a New Testament church could go to church together. Work of Christ is motivation. Can I just say it this way? If he went to that extent and paid that price for peace, then you and I should endeavor to maintain it. We don't make the peace. He's already made it. But our responsibility is to make every effort to keep it. The motivation to endeavor, as difficult as it may be at times, to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, the motivation because of the witness of the Spirit through our church and in our interactions with each other, the work of Christ is a motivation, what He accomplished in order for peace to be produced. I think about the wonder of angels. This is another motivation I'll just briefly mention. Notice, if you would, chapter 3 and verse number 8. Chapter 3 and verse number 8. And we're bringing this to a conclusion here soon. 
Chapter 3, verse number 8, Unto me, Paul said, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, talking about the fellowship of the church, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now notice this, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. I heard an old preacher explain it this way years ago that the angels are observers on the work of redemption in the church. And Paul said one of the reasons God did what he did is to teach angels. If you can imagine it this way, as angels want to understand the work of redemption, they who didn't need redemption, as they want to understand it, the idea is this, is that they, one of God's purposes is that they look over the banister of heaven and they learn about redemption by the way that they see redeemed people interacting with each other. That they might learn the manifold wisdom of God through the church. What a motivation. I remember hearing years ago of a pastor leading a business meeting and uh, there was some uh, division that rose up and uh, some rancor that rose up in the business meeting. The pastor just stopped the business meeting right there, and he said, folks, we're going to stop the meeting right here. He said, the angels are watching. The angels are watching. We could say this, and, and this is not a very good testimony of the Spirit of God. And this is not what Jesus paid for when there's disunity. Jesus didn't pay for this. He paid for peace. What a motivation. And then the maintenance of it. As we think about, as difficult as it is at times, to keep the unity of the Spirit, think about, number five, the maintenance of it. Endeavoring to keep. It's the idea of maintaining it, protecting it, guarding it, making every effort to guard it, to keep it with all possible speed. Maintaining the unity, fighting for it. Even if it means lowliness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, considering others before myself. I thought about Jesus and his disciples. Twice on the night of the upper room, going in and then while they were in the room, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. <laughs> and remember what he said he goes the princes of this world that's how they act maneuvering jockeying for position seeking to be in charge of everybody else but Jesus said let's not let that be so among you and yet here they are on the night Jesus was taken arguing about who's the greatest and do you know how Christ endeavored to keep the unity of his disciples. And by the way, he had a job of it. I've thought about this before, and I read a book years ago that pointed this out. There were both sides of the spectrum among Jesus' disciples. Jesus had a disciple that is called Simon the Zealot. In his day, that would have been like a far right-wing, conservative, proud boy. Okay, to speak of that movement, okay? Uh, somebody who's, who is, uh, I mean, like extreme, all right? 
And then he had Matthew, the tax collector, that would have been the equivalent of AOC. A progressive liberal. Compromising with the Roman government, willing to... I mean, we could go on and on with the description. And, and they didn't have a crowd of 500 to get lost in. There were 12 of them. Okay. And yet Jesus <laughs> brought them together. Now, obviously, they had to leave a lot of baggage behind, but he brought them together. As his disciples wrangled, John 13 indicates to us that Jesus laid aside his garment, girded himself with a towel, and got on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples. He washed feet that were about to flee from his presence. He washed the feet of a man who was about to deny that he ever even knew him. He washed the feet of a man who would be the one who, as the son of perdition, would betray him into the hands of the Jews and the Romans. And yet, in John 17, we find him praying, Lord, I pray that they will be one. And the way that he endeavored was by being a servant among them. Psalm 133, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's not easy, but boy, is it beautiful. It is worth it. It's worth it. And so let's endeavor, endeavor, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, the peace that Christ purchased through the blood of His cross. So that we would not just be one as a church that we would be one in peace, quietness, so that the Spirit of God can be manifesting His power through us and so that the beauty of the cross of Christ can be lifted up and pictured through us. Tertullian, what we often call an early church father, was born about 50 years after John the Apostle died. He was from Carthage in North... Or, uh, he was from Carthage... And um, someone asked him one time the effectiveness of Christianity, even with the intense persecution that in his lifetime they were already seeing. And he spoke of the impact that Christians and churches had on the pagan world around them. And he testified that it was the proclamation of the pagan Romans of his day when they would watch Christians interact with each other, that they would say this, Behold, how they love each other. And look at how ready they are to die for each other. Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. Love like that is how the world knows we're Jesus' disciples. Father, Help us, even though it's not easy, help us to understand this evening that it's worth it and it's beautiful when God's people 
endeavor, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. The oneness which He produces, His mind on issues, His mind when it comes to the purpose of a church, to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that quietness that is brought down the walls of animosity that exists between people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, economic strata, or people who were brought up in conservative Christian homes, going to church with people who are saved out of drugs or out of progressive liberalism in our society and how your work has the power to bring us all together. And God, help us to endeavor. I pray that you would work in our hearts to have a heart like Christ when it comes to how we interact with each other. And I pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.